Today we're moving on through James uh, chapter 3. I'd like to start by reading with you the verses 13 through 18 of James 3. It should appear on your screen in a second. Otherwise, feel free to use your own Bibles, whatever form you have them. Remember that James is the brother of Jesus, most likely. This letter was written to the... uh, the Jewish church that was being forced to leave Jerusalem, they were kind of like refugees because of the persecution. This is in a very specific period of the history of Acts before Paul took prominence and the whole question of relating uh, the Gentiles to the Jews in the church. It was this very specific section of time. And the Christians, the Jewish Christians, are settling in villages and provinces and places outside of Jerusalem, scattered around um, the world there. And that's the audience to uh, whom uh, James is addressing. So he continues by saying this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere." And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Martha Morquise says this about this section. James repeatedly depicts a basic contrast between the world, between the word, law, wisdom of God, which is enduring and patient and life-giving, and the ways of the world, which are fleeing and chaotic and death-dealing. And I cannot but imagine again that James, as the brother of Jesus, as he wrote these words about wisdom, was thinking about his brother. You may remember those two verses that come from Luke chapter 2, which we tend to read around Christmas time or at the end of Christmas time. The child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. James's brother, Jesus, was full of wisdom. And then later, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. If you know, want to know what wisdom looks like, Then you look at Jesus, as James did, who grew up with Jesus and was surrounded with this person who was full of wisdom. And I can't help but imagine that all of that was in the back of his mind and filling his heart as he wrote these words about wisdom. And he starts off by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works 
in the meekness of wisdom. Wise, understanding. One of the commentaries says, a wise person or understanding qualifies wise. A wise person who also has experience, knowledge, and ability. And your wisdom, and we'll notice this theme again in James, is always reflected in your conduct and in your works. There's no separation between what you think and what you believe and how you act, or there shouldn't be. James is always pushing us toward this unity, this maturity, this perfection, this telos of authenticity. What I think, what I believe is reflected in how I conduct myself and how I work the actions that I commit, that I do. And then he goes into the opposite of wisdom. And they're going to read two separate verses here from 14 and 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And then a little bit later, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James sets over against this wisdom. And again, as you think of wisdom, just think of Jesus and who he was. And over against that, he places these two concepts of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition or envy. Jealousy, bitter, je- bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and envy. I've thought about this a lot this week, and I could talk for a few minutes about envy and about jealousy and about what that is, and there's all kinds of quotes and all kinds of things you can say about that. But I suspect that most of us, if we were asked if we were jealous or envious, would most likely, honestly say, not really. Right? Most of us have just about everything that we need or want. It's not that we don't have problems. It's not that we don't have struggles. But they don't particularly lie in the area of envy or jealousy. There's really no one that I look at and say, oh, I wish I had that. Uh, his car is bigger than mine or his bank account's bigger than mine. I, I, don't really, I, I honestly don't really have that. And I suspect that most of us, again, we have our other problems, <laughs> but I think most of us would probably honestly say, envy and bitter jealousy is not really a thing with me. So I wondered, how might James express this same idea in our time today? What might he say instead of bitter jealousy and envy? And I'm going to suggest something to you. And I realize it may be just kind of dumb. That's possible. But it came across my screen this week, and I thought about it. And I wondered if this might be, at least for some of us, a term that James might use 
instead of bitter jealousy and envy. And here it comes. You've heard of it, I'm sure. FOMO. The fear of missing out. A lot of us here are a bit older, and maybe this isn't quite such a term for us. The fear of missing out. And I looked around on internet, and there's a lot of pop psychology around the fear of missing out. And there's actually a fair amount of half-decent research about the fear of missing out. And I ran across an article which is called the fear of someone, a couple of scientists developed a fear of missing out scale. A way to find out if people have this fear of missing out. And here's one of the, 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 the conclusions that they come to about what the fear of missing out is. We posit that consumers not only fear missing out on experiences other people enjoy, social FOMO, you ever heard of that, social FOMO? Learned at least one thing this morning. But also fear missing out on experiences they wished for themselves, personal FOMO. So this idea that you're missing out on experiences that other people have, but also this idea that you fear missing out on experiences that I wish that I had had. And I think there's a possibility that that might come closer to home for some of us. And in the scale that these scientists developed, they asked people to uh, reflect on issues like this. I feel I am disconnected with what goes on in life. Or I believe I'm falling behind compared to others. I fear that I don't have what everyone else has, or I can't do what everyone else can do. I think I'm not welcomed or not fit, don't fit in with my social groups. I feel excluded. I keep thinking that my friends are having fun, and I am not. And maybe for some of us who are a little bit older, this is not in the scale of these scientists. These I made up myself, thinking about myself. Has my life been as impactful as that of the other person. What have I done with my life in comparison to, I'll just name somebody, Shane Claiborne. Fear of missing out. Am I going to have enough for my retirement, especially compared to that other person who seems to already have it all together? fear of missing out on what my retirement might be able to give me. Or this is another one. How can the other person be so carefree? He's whist- he or she is whistling through life. And I'm burdened by whatever it is. All of these can be placed, I think, under what we might call today this fear of missing out. And I just posit to you, just wonder, just asking the question, 
that if James were writing today, if he might talk about this in place of bitter jealousy and envy. And he says, the fruit of living burdened by this fear of missing out, and he uses very strong language as James tends to do, is boasting. You're being false to the truth. You're telling lies about the other or about yourself. He calls it earthly, and by earthly, James and the Bible never means just the creation around us. It means this, this kingdom, this empire. It's of the empire. It's using power, materialism, militarism to gain its purposes. It's unspiritual, he says. It's not connected with the kingdom of God. He even calls it demonic. Have you ever thought that FOMO might be demonic? Pretty hard language. It causes disorder and what he calls vile practices. And I just give you that to think about it. The opposite of wisdom, the opposite of Jesus is a person whose life is consumed with, impacted by this fear of missing out. And one of the ways I think you can tell whether you struggle with this is what makes you down or depressed? I'm not a psychologist. And there is also both in pop psychology and academic literature a correlation, not necessarily a causation between envy and depression. Envy and feeling down. FOMO and feeling down. And I don't mean clinical depression. I mean, just, I'm just, something has got me down. And I just encourage you to think about that. Again, because most of us in our situation, we talk about envy, bitter, jealousy. It's just not a thing. I just don't, I don't know where I, I don't know where I would have that. But I do know that I sometimes feel down. Deeply discouraged. And could that be because I'm suffering from the fear of missing out? And what would it look like to be wise, to have the character and the character of Jesus in that situation? Full of love and grace and truth, knowing that he was loved by God. And that that was the foundation of his existence. And that took away any, any hint of envy, bitter jealousy, or FOMO. And over against that, James places the wisdom from above. James 3.17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The fruit, the, the wisdom from above is first of all, what? Pure. And one of the commentaries I used referred to Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, who lived most, was an African-American, lived, was a slave, was a freed slave, lived most of the 19th century, 
He was a social reformer, an abolitionist, an orator, a writer, and a statesman, was also a committed Christian who, and I quote him, said, I love all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhor slavery more than ever. And Douglas held lots of anti-slavery speeches. And he referred, or actually quoted, this verse from James more than ten times. The verse that says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and secure and sincere. He quotes this more than ten times. And here's one of his quotes. There can be no peace where there is oppression, injustice, or outrage upon the right. None but the most hollow and deceitful peace could ever exist between the man who was on his back on the ground and the man that stood on his neck with his heel. In other words, what Douglas is saying is that word pure for James is super important. Don't slip over it. Douglas would say pure wisdom is just wisdom. There could pure peace is just peace. There could be no peace, no gentleness, no reason, no mercy, no good fruits, no impartiality, no sincerity without justice. As long as one person's foot is on the neck of another, there can be no peace. So there's this idea of justice that lies at the root of this wisdom and this peace. And then James concludes this section, verse 18, with this. A harvest of righteousness. Remember again, whenever you read this word righteousness in the New Testament, you can put in parentheses behind it, justice. A harvest of justice is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so what's James doing? He's calling us again to action. Not just, as Moore says, holy, high-minded words, but action. So there's wisdom, the purity of wisdom that leads to peace, gentleness, reason, mercy, good fruits, impartiality, and sincerity or authenticity. Peacemaking, I find it fascinating that this is how James concludes this section. Because we normally don't connect wisdom with peacemaking. That's what he does. The wise person makes peace. Peace that's rooted in justice. And certainly, in our time, And certainly in the United States of America of today, we need peace to be made. But it needs to be a pure peace in the word of James. How can we strive for pure peace 
in the unrest and division of our time. Well, let's try to think about that concretely in the context of an issue that's on all of our minds this week, and it's the SCOTUS decision of Friday overturning Roe versus Wade. In all of the issues and all of the swirl around that issue, what would it look like to, in wisdom, work for just peace? And I've mentioned this podcast before. The podcast is Good Faith, highly recommended to you. Good Faith with David French and Curtis Chang. And on Friday afternoon's podcast, they talked about this decision of the Supreme Court and gave what I think are some very good tips and perspectives, mostly perspectives, on how to put these two things together. So I'd like to play some of it for you. This is mostly David French speaking. So go ahead and have a listen. And and the goal of the pro-life movement, I've always phrased it kind of like this, that A just nation protects unborn life. A moral nation values all life. So a just nation protects unborn life and all life, and it also values it. And valuing it is much more than just merely saying, "You, thou shall not kill, right? That's much more. That's a baseline, bottom-level minimum. There's so much more beyond that. And that's where the, the, the responsibility of the pro-life movement now begins to really dramatically shift, especially in those states where the, you know, abortion is going to be either banned or heavily restricted. Um, you've got to really uphold that moral value of life. How do you, you know, what, what is the call now for the pro-life Christian? Well, you know, one thing is uh, avoid triumphalism. You can be grateful, you know, you can be grateful and thankful. But avoid this dunking in your face, tribalism, ha ha, you lost. Uh, avoid that. Avoid that. Because you have to realize, number one, it's wrong on its own terms. And number two, it has a real negative effect on your underlying cause, just as a pragmatic basis. Um, the second thing you have to understand, I think, is where, at, where are you in, the, in, in this world right now? Are you in a state like Tennessee where... Um, as a pro-life uh, Tennessean, the justice piece of this is going to be largely taken care of in almost instantaneously. In terms of the legal justice, the, the yeah, legal the justice Tennessee, yeah. Yeah. Tennessee is going to protect unborn life, okay, from this moment. But that doesn't mean that people are going to seek abortions in Tennessee. So what do you do about this? And this is something where I go back to, you know, it, it's not just loving the... Um, and not just loving the the moms in your immediate circle, you know, family, close friends, supporting people in distress in that circumstance, but also seeing how you can relieve the distress of moms in moving and radiating out from your close circle. So this means, you know, I'm a big supporter of crisis pregnancy centers, for example, because they're reaching people who are under distress. Another thing is figure out why people get abortions, and because the reason, reason isn't just because it's legal, right? So why does somebody seek an abortion? What are the reasons? And so some, when you begin to figure that out, you know that one thing that is extremely important in the decision is uh, a sense of financial insecurity or hope for the future. 
Okay. So financial insecurity is something more measurable. And these are things like that you can do something about like there, there is a Rom, Mitt Romney has this really promising plan that he's put forward for child allowances. And, and what that does is it says, even prenatally, even prenatally, you're going to get financial support to help you prepare for the birth of a child. And then you're going to get a monthly allowance if you, you know, uh, not the very rich won't and people who don't work at all will, it's, it's a, it's more complicated. But if you're working, if you're working middle class, poor, you're going to get financial support if you have kids is a way of dealing concretely with child poverty. The child allowance plan will, if implemented, will do a, just a change the child poverty numbers dramatically um, and ease financial insecurity. And we know that financial insecurity is a reason why, a big reason why people get abortions. The other one is this other thing that's a lot more sort of um, ephemeral, tough to, tough to, really pinned down, but it is this sort of notion of hope for the future. And, and that's one that I think that a, a Christian community that is a community of life and joy and hope can really sort of intervene in those circumstances against the spirit of despair and hopelessness. Um, I, you know, I think one of the reasons why abortion rates went up in the last four years, in spite of the fact that abortion was more restricted, is we had a, just a dramatic escalation, and this is even pre-pandemic, in despair and yeah, instability. Right. Yep. And doing something about despair and instability is an incredibly important part of this puzzle. Make some really wise words there that make for peace and justice. A just nation protects all life, including unborn life, and a moral nation values all life. Those two need to go together. And then I was struck by this quote. I'm going to put it up on the wall from David French right towards the end. A Christian community that is a community of life and joy and hope can really intervene in those circumstances against the spirit of despair and hopelessness. Doing something about despair and instability is an incredibly important piece of this puzzle. And it's my longing for our little congregation that we would be a community of life and joy and hope. That would then be effective in maybe for one individual or maybe for more doing something about despair and instability the making of peace which is rooted in this wisdom rooted in this wisdom that is really in the end Jesus Christ the brother the older brother of the writer of this passage. And you perhaps remember when Jesus was born, his parents took him into the temple. And there he met, they met an old prophet, Simeon, who had been waiting for his whole life for the coming of the Messiah. And when Simeon saw this baby, this is what he said. And you, child, will be called 
the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet, whose feet? Our feet. And feet are moving, they're doing stuff. In the what? Into the way, the road, the movement, the action of what? Of peace. So here's this Jesus whom we profess to follow, wisdom personified, who invites us us to, to root our lives into him deeper and deeper. And out of that wisdom comes a purity, a justice that results in peace, gentleness, openness to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What would it look like if our community and more and more churches, more and more groups that say they follow Jesus would grow in this kind of wisdom and this kind of making of peace? Rooted again in the one who went before us as wisdom, the great peacemaker. I'd like to conclude with a song on video just to give you an opportunity to reflect. It's a song that I think most of you will know, most of you will recognize. And I just challenge you again to let the Spirit of God Uh, speak to you in whatever ways he's calling you to grow in wisdom and grow in being able to let go of the FOMO and walk in the way of peace.